I'm so glad my faith has found a resting place in the Lord Jesus Christ, something sure, amen? Not politicians or any other thing. Praise the Lord. That was a good song. Encouraged me. Take your Bibles and turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians 2. And we welcome you tonight as well as welcoming you who are joining us on the live stream. Glad that you're with us as well. And we'll trust that the Word of God will be an encouragement to you tonight. We started in chapter 2 last Wednesday night. And of course, we're working our way through this epistle to the church in Thessalonica, the second one that Paul wrote. And he wrote that just a handful of months after he wrote the first one. And there were some very important things that the Apostle Paul wanted to get across to this church. And I, as we started this last week, we had made mention of the content of chapter 2, and Paul begins to get into the, the real reason for which he wrote this epistle in the first place in chapter 2. Chapter 1 was all about encouragement in persecution, because the church in Thessalonica, from the very moment it was established, uh, was under great persecution and only seemed to escalate uh, in just these handful of months. And so Paul writes, and it starts out by encouraging them in all their tribulations and persecutions that they endure. He said that in verse 4, regarding persecutions, regarding tribulations that they endured in. But there was also another reason, and the main reason was to correct some things in their thinking. Um, partly because of the persecution they were experiencing, uh, led them to thinking the way that they were currently. And so Paul wanted to correct their thinking. And what had happened was the church had adopted some erroneous notions concerning the day of the Lord, or tribulation, or the time of God's judgment. And certainly the day of the Lord uh, expands uh, far more than just the tribulation period. But it does include that. And what was happening was that they had supposed that the day of the Lord was actually already happening. And in consequence of that belief, the church in Thessalonica was thrown into this state of, of alarm, this state of excitement, and even despair. And so Paul says, and, and we, we note this in verse 2, because he said, I don't want you to be so easily shaken in your mind and be troubled. And so when you get to verse 1, Paul says, now. The word now literally means but. It was a transition word. And so Paul was transitioning from encouraging in chapter 1 to the main reason for writing. And he says, he says now I beseech you, brethren, by the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto Him. Last week we talked about these words. The word beseech simply means to ask but it carries a, a great intensity to it. So it's not just asking a simple favor. Paul is, 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 is asking and imploring you, the church. He says, I I'm imploring you, I beseech you, by. The word by means regarding, and it carries the meaning on the basis of. And so Paul says, I, I'm beseeching you, I'm asking you on the basis of this. And he says, on the basis of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together 
unto him. The coming of Jesus Christ, the word coming is key because it's the Greek word parousia. It means to return, but it was a word that was specifically used of Christ in returning to punish Jerusalem or to finally punish the wicked. So it was a specific word. So based on the coming of Jesus Christ for retribution, for punishment, and by our gathering together unto him. That means an assembling. And the rapture is implied here. The phrase is very similar to the phrase, the catching away that Paul used in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 in verse 17, when he said, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so Paul's referring to the rapture. So Paul says, I'm asking you for something on the basis of the physical bodily return of Jesus Christ. That the Bible says when he comes in glory and he comes in power, that every eye shall see him. And you and I haven't seen him yet. And he says, I'm also beseeching you on the basis of our gathering together unto him, the rapture of the saints. And you and I haven't been taken out of here yet. These are sure things, certain things. And so based on these certain things, I'm going to ask something of you. And what was it that he was imploring them? He says in verse 2, that you be not soon shaken in mind or troubled. And we talked about those. The word soon means easily or hastily. Shaken in mind talks about wavering, being agitated. It means to rock back and forth. So they were unstable. And what happens when you're rocking back and forth? Your, your mind and your thinking can get all twisted up. You can get dizzy. And so in order to defeat the false teaching that the day of the Lord or God's judgment had already begun, in our text verses tonight that we're going to read, Paul begins to focus on some preconditions for the coming of the day of the Lord. And he shows the the, the church in Thessalonica, that these things have not happened yet. So you're not living in the day of the Lord. And so he wants to correct their thinking. I want to draw your attention to verses 3 through 12. All right? The Bible says here, Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day, it's referring to the day of the Lord, shall not come except there come a falling away first. And that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you I told you these things? And now ye know what withholdeth, that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let, until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed." whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion, delusion that they should believe a lie that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Tonight we're just going to consider these verses here, and we'll work our way all the way through the verses. That doesn't mean that's the only thing that we're going to consider about these verses. Just tonight we might get back to them with some more detail a little bit later on. 
But before we look at the main part of this text, I want to I just remind you of some things that we've already talked about concerning the day of the Lord. And we talked about it in, in 1 Thessalonians. But when the day of the Lord comes, the Bible tells us that the day of the Lord is going to be a time of terrible, terrible destruction. Revelation chapter 6 and verse 15, the Bible says, The kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man. So, in other words, there wasn't anybody that was excused from this list. And so, John writes in Revelation saying, The kings of the earth, the great men, all the way down to even the bondmen, every free man, What did they do? They hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? The Bible is really clear for us that when the day of the Lord comes, it's a terrible time of destruction, and all people, without exception, are going to feel the wrath of God. Uh, those who, who, who are unbelievers, those who obeyed not the truth, those who've rejected Christ, the great day of His wrath has come. And they said, fall on us, mountains, to hide us from His face. So the day of the Lord is a time when God's wrath is going to be poured out on this earth. But Paul tells the Thessalonians that Jesus, in 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 10, delivers us from the wrath to come. He tells them in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 9 that God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the day of the Lord is a time of God's wrath, but it's not for the people of God. It's for the rejecters of God. He also tells the Romans in Romans 5 in verse 8, But God commendeth His love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. Amen? The saints of God are not going to be here during the period of time that God pours out His wrath on this world. We're going to be raptured, gathered together with the Lord. So Paul is saying, I'm beseeching you, don't be so easily shaken in your mind. Don't be afraid so easily, because I'm, I'm, I'm basing it on the coming of the Lord and our gathering together unto Him. We discussed this in depth in our study in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the gathering together unto the Lord. The rapture is what we call it, of the saints of God. And so there have been some things that that we've discussed, some things that must happen before the day of the Lord comes, and the rapture is certainly one of those things. But now in our text, Paul tells them there's two more things that need to happen before the day of the Lord, the full wrath of God, comes. And Paul lists these things. 
and says these things have to happen before the day of the Lord comes. He talks about apostasy needing to happen, and he talks about the revelation of the man that we call the Antichrist. So I'm going to work our way through these verses here, and we'll unpack it a little bit, and maybe, Lord willing, we'll come back later on for some specific things. But first of all, note with me in verse 3, the apostasy. So Paul says, let no man deceive you by any means. What is he talking about? He says, don't be deceived. And they were deceived because earlier on he said in verse 2, don't be troubled, that means to be afraid. Don't be shaken in your mind. Don't get your thinking all twisted, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. So apparently, in other words, somebody had come into the church and somebody had given them the idea that the day of the Lord was already here. You're living in it. And maybe even to prove that, they pull out this letter and says, this is from the Apostle Paul. See, you're living in the day of the Lord. Paul says, don't be deceived. Don't be troubled. Whether it's a message from somebody else or whether it's a letter as from us that the day of Christ is at hand. No, that's not the case. And I'm going to show you something. So he says in verse 3, let no man deceive you by any means. In any way, don't be deceived. For that day, the day of the Lord, shall not come except there come a falling away first. In other words, the Apostle Paul says that day's not going to come before an apostasy happens, a falling away first. That phrase falling away comes from the Greek word apostasia, which, of course, we uh, get our, our English word apostasy from. It means a defection is what it means, or a falling away, and it means a defection from the truth. Notice here that he says that this, there's a falling away from the truth. Or, excuse me, the faith. He says uh, in verse 3, except there come a falling away first. Now, what's it talking about? Again, it means a defection. It means a defection from the faith or truth itself. So near the end of what we would call the church age or the gospel age, there is a terrible departure from faith from the faith, a falling away. Now, 1 Timothy chapter 4, and verse 1 says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly. That's the Holy Spirit. And he's speaking very clearly here, that in the latter times, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. So according to 1 Timothy 4, people are going to depart from the faith, the true Christian faith. They're going to fall away from true Christian faith. And I want you to notice this. He's not talking about people just leaving a church. No, he doesn't say that that people are going to fall away from church. He says people are going to leave the faith. The faith means very truth itself. And how is that going to happen? Well, according to 1 Timothy 4.1, by giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Go over there. Let's look at it. Just flip back or to the right just a little bit. 1 Timothy 4.1, I want you to see it for yourself. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. 
So how will people depart from truth, from the faith? How is it going to happen? It's going to happen because they're going to follow after deceiving spiritual things, and they're going to follow after demonic doctrines. Now, I'm going to say something that some people might find controversial. Maybe none of you in here, maybe somebody online, I don't know. But I'm just going to say it anyway, because that's the kind of guy I am. No, I'm kidding. I'm going to say it because I believe it's true. I believe that we are in the midst of apostasy right now, a falling away from truth right now. Many are claiming that, quote, the church is experiencing great revival. But what does this, quote, revival consist of in Christianity today? Because that's kind of what the feeling is. That's kind of what the, the lingo is, that there's, there's this awakening and there's this a revival going on among, quote, the church. Number one, there's a wrong definition of the church. But number two, what does this revival consist of? Is it a back-to-the-word-of-God type of revival? Is it a revival that is marked by repentance toward God and forsaking of sin? Is that the kind of revival that we're seeing? Or is it the kind of revival that says, just come as you are, come to Jesus as you are, and stay the same. He loves you no matter what you are. What kind of revival is it? This revival, if you want to call it that, is based on unbiblical spiritual experiences. Now remember, 1 Timothy 4.1 says it's going to be because of giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. That's how people are going to depart from the faith. There's unbiblical spiritual experiences like, for example, being slain in the spirit. Holy laughter, speaking in tongues. These are all things that happen in, quote, Christian charismatic churches. And if you've ever seen anything like it, it can get pretty strange. It can get pretty weird. I've watched a few online, actually. I've never been in the, in the church, praise the Lord, because that would, that would freak you out. But I've watched a few online. And what you see happening before your eyes when people are being slain in the Spirit, and then people all of a sudden are speaking in this weird uh, gibberish, and their eyes roll back in their head, and there's all that. You can't describe it anything other than a spirit, and it's not a spirit that's of God. You try the spirits, whether they are of God. The Word of God teaches us. These are seducing, deceitful spirits. It caused people to think that what they're embracing is true when it's actually a seducing spirit in order to deceive. This, quote, revival is based on unbiblical teachings as well. Seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Teaching that tickles people's ears, but it deceives the soul. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4. Know what Paul says here in 2 Timothy 4. In verse 2, he says, preach the word. So it's the word of God. That's the foundation. You preach that. Be instant, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. This is what you do, Timothy, based on the word of God. You preach it, you reprove, you rebuke, you exhort, and you do it with longsuffering and you do it with doctrine. Why? Verse 3, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, 
But after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Here is a departing, a falling away from truth with teaching that tickles the ears, but it deceives the soul. Listen, friends, there is a version of Christianity that enables people to create their own realities. Not what is biblically true, but to create their own realities of what they think is true. The name it, claim it crowd. You just believe it, and you name it, and you claim it, and God's going to give it. God's going to make it happen. Teachers that proclaim the health and wealth prosperity gospel. You give your money to the church, and you invest in the Lord, and the Lord's going to... And if you are sick, and if you are not prosperous, you're not in the Lord's will. And then the Joel Osteens, who have the, the perpetual grin on their faces all the time, who won't talk about sin... But they want to talk about how God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Feeding off the flesh. Feeding off of what everybody desires to want to feel. What am I saying? These are doctrines that have been conceived in hell itself. They are doctrines of devils that deceive people into thinking that they have the truth. Well, the Bible warns that we ought to expect to see apostasy in the form of counterfeit Christianity, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. Well, Paul says to the church in Thessalonica, he says, don't be so easily shaken in your minds. Don't be so afraid. Because that day, the day of the Lord, the judgment of God, it's not going to happen until there comes a falling away first. Well, I believe we are in the middle of that falling away, or at least in the process of it. A departure from truth. Friends, you can't fall away from something you never had. That's a sad commentary, is what that is. People changing their positions, changing their doctrine, believing lies that appeal to their flesh, Paul says this needs to happen first. Secondly, Paul, go back to our text. We won't belabor the point there. So we see the falling away or the apostasy. But then in the second part of verse 3, we see the man of lawlessness. Paul says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first. And that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. The man of lawlessness. The second thing that Paul says is going to happen before the day of the Lord is the revealing of the Antichrist. And we don't have the time to, tonight to examine everything that the Bible has to say about this man. But I do want us to look at what Paul describes here. And what we need to understand is that the Bible prophecy is very clear about who this man is. And we don't know his name and we don't know that we have ever even seen him at this point. But the Bible does tell us that in the future, there's going to be ten nations. Ten nations from the former Roman Empire are going to rise out of some European communities into dominance. And the Bible says in Revelation chapter 17 that these nations, these ten kings, 
are going to give their power to the Antichrist. And he is going to be able to rule or to, uh, to have power and dominion over all the world, over all the earth. Not only that, but the Antichrist is going to come to power, certainly, from the Word of God, but he's going also to make a covenant. Now look in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27. And I'll just briefly touch on these things so that we can stay on track with where we're going here. And again, we don't have the time to look at everything the Bible says about the Antichrist. But we know that he's going to come to power. We know that he's going to have rule over kindreds and nations and tongues. But he's also going to make a covenant. The Bible says in Daniel 9 and verse 27, And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. Now, we need to understand that when it says one week, it's talking about weeks of years. So there's seven days in a week, and so this is weeks of years, so it means seven years. So he's going to confirm the covenant with many for one week, or seven years. And in the midst of the week, so three and a half years, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even unto the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. What this is telling us is that the Antichrist is going to make an agreement, a peace agreement with the nation of Israel, a seven-year peace treaty with Israel. That is going to include the rebuilding of their temple, and the Jews will call him or hail him as their Messiah, and he's finally come, and they're going to give worship to him. But after just three and a half years, he's going to break that commitment or that covenant by committing what's called the abomination of desolation. And what that is, he's going to stand in the very Holy of Holies in this rebuilt temple, and he's going to proclaim and exalt himself above all that is called God, claiming to be God himself. Now go back to our text. And note verse 4. 2 Thessalonians 2, 4 says, Who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God. So he opposes God, number one. He exalts himself above all that would be called God, so even earthly religion and so on, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. You notice that? So in other words, he's going to proclaim and exalt himself above all that is called God, even claiming himself to be God. Of that day, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, turn over there. Matthew chapter 24 In verse 15. And now these are specific Jew, or prophecies to the Jews, not to all saints in general. Okay, so understand that. So when Jesus says in verse 15, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, 
Whoso readeth, let him understand. So when you see the abomination of desolation, the Antichrist standing in the holy place, you need to understand this. He says in verse 16, Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Let him that is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. But pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the, uh, of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. On that day, Jesus says, a horrible persecution is going to break out against the Jews, such as has never been seen in the history of the world. That includes Hitler's persecution of the Jewish people. That's who this man is. He has power from Satan himself to deceive the nations. He makes a peace agreement with the nation of Israel. He breaks that peace agreement in at the midpoint of the tribulation, and the great tribulation begins. And Jesus says, you better flee to the mountains when that day comes because of persecution like you've never seen, like the world has never seen, is coming. So we see the man of sin, the lawless one, the son of perdition. Now go back to our text here. And I want you to notice, thirdly, the restrainer. Because Paul gets to verse 6. So we remember the whole context here. These people thought that they were in the day of the Lord, experiencing the wrath of God. They missed the rapture. They were all deceived. They were troubled. And Paul says, don't let anybody deceive you because... There's got to come a falling away first. There also has to be the revelation of the Antichrist who opposeth and exalteth himself above God. He shows himself to be God. And Paul says, remember, don't you remember that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? Then he gets to verse 6. And he says, there's another thing. And now you know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time, for the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And we call this the, I've called this the restrainer. Paul reminds the Thessalonian church that they already knew what or who was restraining Satan from so revealing himself at the time. The phrase, what withholdeth, look at verse 6. And now you know. He's like, you already know what withholdeth. That phrase, what withholdeth, is translated from the Greek word kateko, and it has the sense of restraining or holding back. Okay? So you already know what's holding this back, what's restraining. And then he says in verse 7, For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. The whole mystery of iniquity is already at work, Paul says. What does that mean, the mystery of iniquity? Well, it means the hidden working of Satan toward his goal of, of world domination, ruling the world. 
He says that mystery of iniquity, that hidden working of, of Satan's plan, the rebellion against God, it's already working. It's already in operation. Satan is already online promoting that goal. However, there's a major obstacle which precludes him to this very day of being able to take over. What is that? He says, only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. So what Paul is telling the the Thessalonian church is that the Antichrist revelation is being restrained. It's being held back right now. But you already know that. And you know by who or what it's being restrained. Verse 7 tells us that the restrainer is a who. The word that is... Now look at the verse again. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he, it's a person, who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. The word that is translated as letteth is the same exact word that we just saw before, the Greek word kateko, and it simply means to restrain, it means to hinder, and it means to hold back. So he who is now restraining is going to keep on restraining until the point that he is taken out of the way. You follow that? Everybody understand that? And then in verse 8, And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth. So, in other words, somebody has been restraining evil on the earth from the days of Paul and even for the last 2,000 years. Who is that one? It's the Holy Spirit of God. Amen? He has been working through the saints of God to be salt and to be light in this world that is corrupted by sin. The Spirit of God is restraining through the people of God who are salt and light. But, and he's going to keep on doing that, Paul says, until he be taken out of the way. How is he going to be taken out of the way? When the saints of God are caught up together to meet the Lord in the air and so ever be with the Lord, that is when the Spirit of God is taken out of the way. His influence is removed from this world. He's taken out of the way. He's no longer going to be restraining the spirit of Antichrist. It's then that the Antichrist comes to clear view of who he is, all that opposes God. And the point to the Thessalonians, and we might come back to talk about this a little bit deeper in another message, but the point that the, Paul is making to the Thessalonians is this. You can't possibly be experiencing the day of the Lord because that's what they were confused about. Because that can't happen until after the apostasy and the revelation of the Antichrist. But the Antichrist can't be revealed until you are gone, until you're raptured. Amen. Because the Spirit of God is restraining in this world, and He's going to keep on doing it until He be taken out of the way. And when He's taken out of the way, you're gone, friend, if you know Jesus Christ is your Savior. So... Paul says, you, you should be able to see this, friends. 
that you're not going through the great tribulation. You're not going through the day of the Lord. The persecution that you're facing right now and what you're suffering is not the wrath of God. What it is, is simply the afflictions that Jesus Christ said you would experience if you follow Him. And that should have brought comfort to their soul. Correcting their thinking, but also bringing comfort to their soul. And the best comfort is what Paul says next. Look in verses 8 through 12. Here we see the victor. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. God's bigger than that. He's better than that. He's more powerful than the power and the signs and the lying wonders of the devil. In verse 10, And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they received not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this cause, and by the way, let's just back up for a second. He says in verse 10, they're going to perish because they didn't receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. But what did Paul say is going to happen before the day of the Lord? There's going to be a falling away from the truth. These people didn't receive the love of the truth. They fell away from it that they might be saved. And then he says in verse 11, and for this cause, because of that, God's going to send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, according to verse 9, when the Antichrist is revealed, he's going to deceive people. And he's going to do it with satanic power. He's going to perform signs and wonders. Now go to Revelation chapter 13. Hold your place again. Look at Revelation 13. Verse 1. And I stood upon the sand of the sea. This is John. Saw a beast. Rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his head the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. The dragon is the devil. So the devil gives the Antichrist his power, he gives him his position. He gives him his authority. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death. And his deadly wound was healed. And all the world wondered after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And so they worshipped Satan, who gave power to the beast, who's the Antichrist. And they worshipped the beast saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And there was given unto 
him a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies. And power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God, to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship Him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And if any man have an ear, let him hear. In other words, everybody who's not written in the Lamb's book of life is going to believe and worship the Antichrist. He's going to deceive people with the power that he gets from Satan. According to our text, he's going to perform signs and wonders. One of those, it seems as though he had a deadly wound that was healed. It was wounded unto death. And all the world's going to wonder and marvel at the Antichrist. Back in our text, according to verse, verses 10 through 12, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they received not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion, that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned, who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. According to these verses, all who have rejected Jesus Christ, who didn't believe the truth, are going to be deluded. God's going to send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. They're going to believe the Antichrist lies. But ultimately, Jesus Christ is going to be victorious. Because verse 8 says, or rather, uh, yeah, verse 8 says, Then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of His coming. The Antichrist finally gets what he deserves because Jesus Christ is really God who is more powerful and He's going to consume Him and destroy Him with simply a word of His mouth. Revelation 19 and verse 20 says, The beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. The end. Amen? He's victorious. And the point of all of that that Paul is saying is, look, don't be so shaken and troubled and afraid in your mind. You can't possibly be living in the day of the Lord. Here's all the things that need to happen first. And in the end, friend, Jesus Christ is victorious. And Paul then reminds them in verse 13, he says, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord. You're beloved of God. Because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. You're not appointed to wrath. All that you're experiencing now is not the wrath of God. And you need to be, you need your mind corrected. You need your thinking corrected. 
And you know what, friend? Let me conclude with this. God's people could get really freaked out, too, by focusing on how awful the days that we're living in are, or how awful the last days scenario is. But Paul's reminder to the church in Thessalonica is the same reminder for us, that if you know Jesus Christ, God has not appointed you to wrath. It might be bad looking now, and it might get worse, but in the end, we know who the victor is. So calm your hearts. Settle your soul. We're not going to be subjected to terrible times of the day of the Lord. And so again, Paul is correcting their thinking. He's showing them that you're not going through the great tribulation or the day of the Lord. The persecution that you're suffering is not the wrath of God. It's simply the afflictions that Jesus promised you would have if you follow Him. And you know, you and I might suffer, but we ought to keep in mind that He is worthy. Amen? He's worthy for us to suffer for Him. And in the end, He's the victor. Now, next time we're going to maybe talk about the rest of these verses, verses 13 to 17, the call of the gospel, the traditions or the teaching of the Word of God that Paul had taught them, and ultimately the comfort and the strength. And that's how Paul ends this chapter. He says in verse 17, Comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. They were tossed to and fro. They were tossed about. They were rocked back and forth. They were afraid. Paul says, comfort your hearts and be stable. Amen? And we have the reminder, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. So the prayer is that it's encouragement to you, not that we're going to be here or that any of you are afraid of that, but it reminds us, it encourages us, Hey, the one that we believe in, the one that we believe in, Jesus Christ, He's the victor. And friend, He's given us a job to do. So let's be stable in our heart and our mind. And let's stay on purpose that Christ has given us. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, encourage your people through the Word of God. I'm so thankful. This world is not my home. I'm so thankful that we know the end. We have the explanation already for all the things we see happening right now. And the rest of the world may be in turmoil, but God's people should be at peace. And it should motivate us to be about our business, the business that Jesus Christ has given to us as a New Testament church. And Lord, I pray that we who have the truth would not be silent with the truth. And Lord, would you give us great boldness to speak of the gospel of Jesus Christ that those around us could be saved from the wrath to come. Lord, we love you tonight. Thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for your spirit, Lord, that guides, that leads, that comforts. We thank you for all of these things. You've just provided all that we need to live stable and godly lives in this present world. In Jesus' name, amen.